Welcome to another edition of Voice Latina's Changemaker Series. I am Patricia Sierra Sampson, and I'm so excited today to have our guest on our show. He is most definitely a changemaker because through his work, he's not only impacting, but he's also changing the face of Hollywood and the entertainment industry. But first, let me share a factoid. U.S. Latinos that comprise 18% of our U.S. population are 58 million and growing. But did you know that they are also drivers of box office and ratings? According to the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, Latinos represent 24% of frequent moviegoers, those who attend at least once a month. Latino audiences had the highest rate of moviegoing last year. Yet the sad reality is that for so long in both film and television, minorities remain underrepresented. This is a notable lack of diverse storylines, and there's a scarcity of diverse talent behind the camera, whether it's in the director's chair, some say less than 2%, in the writer's room, and more importantly, in the executive suite where decisions are made. Well, our guest today is trying to change this. Jaime Davila is president and co-founder of Companario Entertainment. It's an L.A.-based production company committed to changing the way Latino voices are presented and understood. Fulfilling his goal of making opportunities for Latinx creators and inclusive programming for audiences, Jaime oversees development and production on both sides of the border. His slate includes the upcoming multi-generational reality series, Mexican Dynasties, slated for Bravo in 2019 a scripted series for ABC inspired by Selena Quintanilla. And he's the executive producer of Colossus, a timely documentary that gives us a rare look into the aftermath of deportation and family separation amidst the current backlash against America's immigrants. Welcome, Jaime. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's indeed our pleasure. First, I'm going to discuss um, a report I recently had access to. It, it came out the beginning of the year, I believe. It's the UCLA's Hollywood Diversity Report mm -hmm. with the, I think it has a subhead of five years of progress and missed opportunities. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> I, I found it interesting that it consistently stated that America's increasingly diverse audiences prefer diverse film and television content. And that films with cast that were, um, I guess it was like from 21 to 30 percent minorities, enjoyed the highest median global box office receipts and the highest median return on investment. These minorities accounted for the majority of ticket sales for five of the top five films in 2016, as it was stated. How are you and your company, Copanario, how are you addressing this issue of missed opportunities? Well, I think part of the issue, well, first of all, just thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. And I love all the work that you're doing for furthering Latino voices and as well. So just thank you for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the major reasons why I started Campanario was because I found a lot of these missed opportunities. Um, I was looking at a lot of what Hollywood was buying and finding it lacking for many reasons, not just because of diversity, but also because of the types of diverse stories they were telling, right? So even if they were telling diverse stories, quote unquote, about Latinos, they were often gangbangers or narcos. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was sort of a double whammy of not only are we 
not represented a lot. But then on top of that, when we are, it's just, you know, it's in a certain way that doesn't represent all types of Latinidad, you know? And Mm -hmm. what was really exciting for me was sort of, as we've been sort of fighting this fight in Hollywood, a lot of the arguments I would hear often from a lot of executives um, was, you know, you know, I would often hear from a lot of executives this idea that, well, why do we have to put them on screen, right? Why do we have to feature Latino voices on screen when they're already coming to the box office, right? So all those statistics that you actually featured at the top of it were actually hurting us in a way because they were sort of saying, well, look at all we've, we haven't done that much and it's still working. And I would often say to them, well, imagine if you were doing it well and better, how much you know, <laughs> your boxes would increase. And I would often say, well, look at the movies that you do have that have Latino talent like Fast and the Furious. And that's a mm-hmm. huge global international franchise featuring Latino heroes. Um, and it over indexes with Latino audiences, but also audiences all over the world. And it was sort of talking to a wall a little bit, right? Um, right. But ultimately what was really amazing was this past year with the release of both Black Panther and Coco, you know, two films that were mainstream, globally marketed, but featuring obviously diverse talent, um, both behind the camera and in front of the camera. And they overperformed beyond the wildest expectations. You know, Coco, for instance, was number one in China for four to five weeks. Um, and it's that type of success that sort of makes Hollywood question a lot of their previous, um, uh, you know, question a lot of their previous ideas. And so what's really been exciting is that, you know, with the success of some of these films and TV shows is that we're sort of the company that can sort of say, Hey, look, we can point to other success and then we can point to our own success and we can say, let's work together to make even representation, even, you know, basically make it a non-issue, right? Like make it so that I don't have to talk about representation, just that it's sort of implicit with everything we're doing, right? Um, So true. And I think that's just sort of, it's a constant debate we're having with Hollywood. But look, I I have to, uh, we have to be very thankful that, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, Coco, Black Panther, all did super well this year. Um, Because it doesn't, it allows us to finally say and stand up together and say, hey, look, we have an audience and it's not just in the U.S., it's everywhere. And they want to hear our stories. So true. And I, I think what also um, comes into play is the rise of multiculturalism. You know, we have now the grow, the fastest growing segment of our population are the millennials, you know, the 18 to 34 and this audience sees itself as a part of the American fabric. They they see themselves as American first. They're very integrated into, into our culture. But at the same time, they recognize they want to see their stories too. You know, the, the, they have a strong connection still to their culture, even though they're second, third generation. They still want to see the storylines. They want to see people like them and hear some of the stories that, that uh, resonate with their community. Do you find that because of this this growth of this segment, the millennials, um, as the main drivers really at times um, of of movie going and also TV watching, does has this affected how you 
uh, and what projects you take on or, or what are you looking for in regard to storylines with keeping this millennial audience in mind? A hundred percent. I mean, I think when you're describing that millennial audience, you're describing me, right? You know, I was born in McAllen, Texas, so right on the border uh, in the mid eighties. And for me, it was very interesting to sort of grow up being an American, right? But also having a very strong Mexican identity, Um, you know, speaking Spanish with my family, going to Mexico every summer, Um, still loving hamburgers and hot dogs, right? But also loving enchiladas, right? And there was no sort of, (laughs) there was no sort of issue with that. Like it was just, I was both. And there wasn't sort of a having to make a choice. Um, And I think that influences me a lot in terms of storytelling and the types of stories I want to tell, right? Because I really want to tell stories that are just, that are about human beings, right? And I think often I look at myself and I'm, I'm put in a box a lot of times. You know, sometimes I put in an American box, sometimes I put in a Mexican box, sometimes a Mexican American box. And I think I often am just sort of saying, well, look, I, I'm just, yes, I participate in those boxes. And yes, I want to fight for the, you know, individuals within those groups. But at the same time, I'm also a human being. And I don't find that my humanity is shown at all on TV or movies. Um, you know, even my name, Jaime, I think I was obsessed with Jaime Escalante and Stand and Deliver because yes. it was, you know, I, I, there was a guy named Jaime on screen, right? And it wasn't that mm-hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't then see someone named John and I couldn't see myself in them, but seeing someone named Jaime really made me, uh, it made me feel different. It made me feel good. It made me feel like, wow, people in America can see that people like me add and we are part of this fabric. Um, And so, you know, I often look at stories for myself that we're developing and I say, look, I want to create stories about kids named Felipe or Jaime or Juan, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but they're also just like the kids who grow up in New York City who are named John or the kids in LA who are named, you know, Alistair, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, it's, they're, they're all the same, you know, we're all American and you know, for so long, a lot of kids like myself, Latino kids, have had to grow up watching a lot of content. And we see ourselves in a lot of kids and, and, you know, white characters, black characters. And I think a lot of what we're trying to develop is sort of saying, hey, look, what we're just trying to have more of this young generation, which happens to be more Latino than ever. Mm-hmm. We need to feature them on screen so that they feel like they're part of the American system. You know, I think it's, it's really all tied together and I'm not, you know, trying to get off topic, but I think, you know, when we mm-hmm. talk about Latino representation in politics, when we talk about why don't Latinos participate more. And I, you know, I often, you know, question my friends who say that. So, well, my, my friends in Hollywood who say that, because I say, well, what are you doing to counteract that? What are you doing to show that Latinos are part of the American fabric already? When we're talking about Latino representation, it's connected to the politics of it, right? When we don't feature Latinos on screen, we, we won't have Latinos then going on pots and saying, I feel part of the system. I want to participate. So I think it's mm-hmm. all really tied together. I think it's really important that we do more to feature these types of stories because, again, these are American stories. You know, I'm not trying to – I'm not here saying, hey, let me make a story about Juan and it's going to be very weird for your audience to understand because right. he's from a different country and he's using a different language. It's like, no, this is exactly – who this is this is an american audience and i think that's what i'm most excited to be developing right a lot of what i try to do in campanario is developing american stories 
that yes, they happen to feature Latino talent or Latino voices behind the screens, or they happen to be Latino characters. But ultimately, these are American stories. And a lot of what I do at Capanario is, you know, I work on both sides of the borders because sometimes I want to tell Mexican stories, right? And sometimes I want to tell Mexican American stories. Um, and I think, you know, I really love celebrating the differences within cultures, right? Uh, but I think ultimately our selling point in the U.S. that we're just keep we keep trying hammering home is exactly that that you know we're not trying to other, we're not others we're not different we're part of this and the more you make us a part of it the more we'll feel part of it the more we'll participate and the less we'll have people that can you know galvanize a lot of people like President Trump did with his language like Mexican Americans because they don't know Mexican Americans you know it's like exactly. It's you what know? they see. It's the images that are presented by media. People don't realize the power that media, that television, uh, film, these images have on our on our youth, on everyone, because um, it, it 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 it's telling these stories. But if it's always under one context where you're vilifying, then then that's the then becomes part of people's understanding of what this community is all about. A hundred percent. Will and Grace is a great example of a show that, look, I'm not saying Will and Grace or Ellen solved gay rights, right? Right. But they were part of a conversation that were allowing us to start changing the framing of the conversation, right? They were allowing people to see these issues from a human perspective versus a politics perspective. And I think that's one of the issues we've been having is that, you know, we, you know, we have to have more of these type of shows on air because then they'll just be part of the conversation. I'm not saying, you know, the work I'm doing Capanario is going to solve everything, but if we're not, if people in Hollywood aren't doing the work, it's definitely not going to be, it's, you know, we're definitely going to be much lower than we can in terms of the progress. And you're, and you're so right about the impact it has. And I'll just put it as a, an, uh, an anecdote here about the impact these images have. I mean, I'm older than you. I'm not millennial. I'm the next one, Generation X. But I do recall I'm Bolivian by birth, but I came here when I was a young child and things were a lot different then. And especially what was on television or movies. And um, of course, it's natural to look for images that look like you, that have your type of name. Um, and, And I remember one of the first experiences of being in this country, even though I was quite young, like I said, I came here at four but I do remember my parents watching I Love Lucy. Mm-hmm. And I experienced a lot of discrimination at school because at that time, um, my neighborhood was predominantly white. Uh, I was the first Latina in my apartment building. Um, the school I went to, I was always like the first Latina that they had encountered. So here I was feeling so out of sorts, not belonging, and then looking at TV and seeing everyone not look like me, not sound like me, not sound like my parents. And and if there were any images, it was always images of people that, uh, like we said, it's either drug dealing or prostitute or what have you. And my father was a uh, school teacher, actually. And so I didn't see school teachers, Latino school teachers on TV or business people that were Latino, but I do remember watching I Love Lucy for the first time. And even though I think I was four, I do remember watching Ricky Ricardo. And what impressed me then and why I think, and to this day, RIP Desi Arnaz, but it was so monumental to see that one, 
He owned his own nightclub. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're a Lucy follower, but he oh, owned follower. his nightclub. He was a business man. He was cool. He had this apartment in the city and he had these neighbors and no one ever mentioned, you know, the fact that he was different. The things that I was experiencing in my own environment where I was the other. Here, he was fully engaged with his neighbors, his business people. He was respected. He was admired. And it stayed with me. It's that feeling made me feel like I feel proud. Because I had my parents who I felt very proud of. And I would, when I would go to school and hear disparaging remarks or racist remarks, I would always say, you know, these are my parents. This is what we're doing. We're, you know, because my dad said we're pioneers, you know. Exactly. But, But to see an image on TV was so powerful because I would, I would literally say, Ricky Ricardo, he owns his own nightclub and he's, he, you know, he's cool. And, and not even knowing that behind the scenes, he was really setting the the stage for future of television and and licensing rights and residuals and all that. I didn't even know that. then. Yeah, no, he's um, the biggest deal ever. And I think, yeah, as a Latino in Hollywood, you, if you don't celebrate Desi Arnaz every day, you're doing it wrong. I mean, he really was incredible. And I think one of my favorite memories was when I was at Bravo, we shot a pilot. It was a real estate pilot. So nothing even that fun, but it was in the original, you know, Desilu Studios. And you you just get that Mm. feeling, right? You get that feeling of like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, like I'm there. And I I completely relate to your antidote. And I think that's exactly Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do, right? Trying to showcase more of those stories. And I'll tell you about myself growing up, where I've already told you about Jaime Escalante, but my father worked in media as well, but he worked on the Spanish side of the border. So he worked in Mexico and then with Univision. And, you know, oftentimes people will come up to me and sort of say like, oh, Univision is part of the issue. You know, Univision is part of the problem because they're showing people that keep speaking Spanish. They're not talking about assimilating. And I often tell them the story of what well, for me growing up, you know, I it wasn't like Univision was cool. Right. And in fact, it was very uncool because my dad worked there. But it was <laughs> something that I remember sitting and watching TV and occasionally I would want to watch novelas uh, with my mom and sister. And mm-hmm. it was because I remember just watching Latino doctors on screen, Latino lawyers. Mm-hmm. You would, mm-hmm. you know, novelas have amazing, uh, you know, care, Latinos who have these incredible jobs. And I would see them and be like, oh, right, it's possible, right? And mm-hmm. you, you, I was the same, you know, when I, I actually, when I was born in McKenna, Texas, but then I moved, moved around a lot, but then eventually moved to New York city when I was 10. And then I was the only Mexican in school until high school where I was still the only Mexican, but you know, there were other Latinos, but we were still very few. Um, and I just remember saying like, Oh wow. Like I feel so part of this. I feel like I want to be so much part of this. And yet still people see, see me as the other. Right. And I know that I can handle, I know I can do everything. I know that people before me have done everything. Um, And so I just have to work harder to make sure that people realize that, right? Like, so that my kids, Ignacio and Joaquin, don't have to deal with that, right? That they are already understood implicitly to be American and not, you know, something else. Um, And so 100%, I think those are the types of things that why it's so important to see Latinos succeeding on American television and it's not just for American audiences, it's for worldwide, because we know the power of American TV, right? So, um, I, you know, I really, that's a major thing, a major reason why we fight the fight, 
uh, every day at Campanario. No, it's not just me. It's a team. Um, and why we're so proud to, you know, have a modicum of success in Hollywood, but how, you know, we know we have so much more work to do, uh, but we're excited to be, you know, really pushing Hollywood to do this because you and I both know how important it is um, and how many more people we can inspire to run their own, you know, mini empires if they just saw that it was possible. Absolutely. And speaking of, of the power of, of the messaging, um, right now, uh, they've, uh, the Center for Public Integrity had, um, has conducted at least, I think it's three years worth of data collection. And they were able to uh, publish that ICE deported a total of 87,351 people between 2015 and the end of 2017 who claimed to have at least one U.S. citizen child. Subsequently, those staggering numbers result, obviously, what we know, which is separation from parents having to make that difficult decision of returning to a country that is unsafe uh, separating the family where the children, the U.S. citizens stay, the parents leave. It's, it's heartbreaking. And, and you have utilized um, the documentary Colossus, you and, and director Jonathan Scheinberg. What, uh, you, you've told this story, but in a very impactful way. I congratulate you. I've seen it. I, 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 I hope uh, I can also... Um, promote that others see it because it, you need to see it from when you see how it affects a family. It's not a headline. It's not something you're reading, but you're actually seeing the impact. Can you talk a little bit about what were you hoping to accomplish when you joined forces with Jonathan Scheinberg and created this documentary, Colossus? Yeah. So, you know, I was working at Bravo um, here in Los Angeles and I sort of decided that I really wanted to change direction. I really wanted to sort of start creating more and more uh, Latino opportunities for Latinos. And so when I left, I started Campanario. And one of the first things I wanted to do was really create a documentary sort of about the topic that we're discussing, about an American boy that has to deal with the politics around his Latin identity. And I really wanted to find that story. And I connected with an old friend, Tommy Davis, who's also a producer of the film Colossus. And Tommy is a documentarian on his own right. Um, and I went to Tommy and I said, hey, w- do you know someone? Do you want to help me with this? I really want to figure out a story we can tell. And he connected me with John, who was at that moment was working at 60 Minutes, but was also super passionate about it and had done a lot of work in immigration and sort of working. Um, he's not Latino himself, but he was very passionate about the subject. And so together we sort of said, let's join forces and find the story, you know, find the story that can really put a human face to deportation um, and can, more than that can put an American face on deportation. Um, something I myself had experienced in high school when one of, one of my best friends and his father was deported for uh, after he was pulled over. Um, you know, he had been illegally in the country for many years, but his son was American. And I, I just... I saw the struggles that these families have faced. Um, you know, my family luckily hasn't had those struggles. Um, you know, we were sort of born in South Texas. So we always say how the border crossed us. And so we've always had this weird sort of mixture. Uh, but luckily we never really had to deal with this as much as other groups have had to. 
So we went out and we looked. We looked for a story. And it took us a while. It took us a few months until we found Jamil. And when I, we found Jamil, I immediately knew that was the story we had to tell. This was a story we had to tell to really sort of put a human face to what a lot of Americans are dealing with, that a lot of Americans are dealing with the American government taking their family away. And I understand, you know, on the one hand, when people say, well, they didn't follow the rules, right? They didn't follow the laws. Um, but on the other hand, when you don't follow, when you, when you pass a red light, the punishment is not banishment from your family, which is what we're doing, right? And so I think so much of what this film really aims to do is sort of say, look, look at what we're doing to American kids. Does the punishment really meet the crime that we're talking about? And finally, I hope it, 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 I hope it asks the question a little bit of, you know, why are we in this mess? When we're asking families to come here and work and assimilate, and then we quickly kick them out. Um, and, you know, so that's, there's a lot of reasons why I really wanted to tell this movie, but I think those are sort of the three main points, you know? Um, and I'm just so fortunate that, you know, in the two years that we shot this film, um, that Jamil and his family allowed themselves to be filmed, you know, and really show the reality of what it's like to be, uh, an American boy with your family in Honduras, what it's like to be an American, you know, a Honduran father who went to America, lived the American dream, did everything that, you know, America asked him to do because again, we gave him the jobs, right? We were paying him and he paid his taxes, but we kicked him out. And we're telling the story of an American girl who, yes, was born in Honduras, but would have been DACA eligible if she hadn't left and is currently has an American accent stuck in Honduras. Um, and she's sort of stuck between both worlds because of bureaucracy. So, you know, really wanted to sort of tell these stories and really, you know, not get involved in the positive of it, just really tell the human side of it, really just tell the human experience of it. Um, because I think once people see that, then they can understand that maybe it is worth changing our system, that maybe this isn't yes. worth what we're doing to people where we're basically, you know, creating mental health issues for thousands upon thousands of people um, mm -hmm. for no reason. Yes, I think um, you utilize the medium well because it did instill empathy because who cannot relate uh, uh, the, the bond between parent and child, the the separation aspect, the the fact that here you had the father who had been doing everything in his mind right. You know, he was contributing. He was working. He had a job. He was paying taxes. They were living the American dream, going on vacations. Children were getting a good education. And being a real participant and contributor, which is something that right now there's so much misconceptions about, you know, a drain to our economy, abusers of the system. So we need these stories to be told because it humanizes the rhetoric and it allows people to understand because this is, as you said, it's just not a Latino story. This is an American story. This is a story of what we stand for, which is opportunity. And these were people that left a country 
that was unsafe. And you showed that aspect of it very well, because there were truly issues there where it was not safe for the children. It was not safe for this family. And any parent, regardless of background, race, what have you, can relate to that, that the most important aspect of being a parent is to give your child security and a better life. So uh, I applaud you for that because it does convey it. Like I said, what better way to, to see it, to feel it, than just read it, these, these headlines that are crossing our you know path every day we're reading and we're, we're hearing in the news. But I think watching it this way and really putting faces behind the storylines really is very impactful. Thank you again. I think that's really why we wanted to make it. You know, we really want to finally change the way we discuss immigration and Latinos. And, you know, thank you for hitting, you know, exactly what you said earlier. Like, I really want to make sure that people understand that there's obviously a market here in the U.S. for low paying menial jobs that we have illegal immigrants do. Right. And they're, they become part of our economy. They work into it. But eventually, we decide that we have to punish these workers, right? It's not that we're punishing the American consumer who want the cheap food in their supermarkets. We're not punishing the owner of the farmland or of the factories. You know, we're punishing the people that are actually doing the work. And I just don't – that itself I also just find to be so un-American. And I think that's the type of thing where we really just have to start changing how we discuss this issue. And I hope Colossus is, is one part of that ongoing discussion that I know we're going to be having for the next two years because of our, you know, president in the white house. Absolutely. Now, um, again, going back to stats, because people like to see everything relative to what really is the reality through facts, right? We always talk about facts and the reality, unfortunately, the reality is that 3% of speaking characters, uh, when it was last collected, this data, I think, was in 2016 of the top 100 films, 3% of those speaking characters were Latinos, right? It was a University of Southern California study. And when we see that the last actor to win an Oscar was Penelope Cruz in 2009 for, of course, a great performance, uh, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. But then for the male, we're looking at Jose Ferrer for Serrano de Bergerac, and it even precedes me. That's how old it is. It's 1951. Um, we've made some breakthroughs, uh, definitely, you know, with with Emmanuel Lubetsky, the cinematographer and directors like Inaritu for Birdman, Revenant, uh, last year's Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro, and of course, Alfonso Cuaron, who was our first Latino Mexican American to win an Oscar f- uh, for Gravity. Do you see some new blood on the horizon? I mean, what does that landscape look like for people like us that were not in this industry? Or do you see up and coming directors, actors, which you see as the new blood out there that we should be looking out for and supporting? Oh, 100%. I think what's really exciting about, you know, being a Latino is that we can sort of have two sides of the border to celebrate, right? And we have... Uh, we have the people like Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron that we can celebrate, but there's tons of U.S. homegrown talent that we're that we at Capanari are working with on a few projects that I'm not yet at liberty to discuss. But trust me that when you hear about them, you're gonna be very excited and you're gonna be saying, "Oh my God, these are the next up and coming Latino people." Um, but you know, one thing I want to mention about that is sort of you know when we see something like Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron, it's great that they're super successful. But we have to remember that the the Mexican government has a very good system 
of promoting young artists and giving them fi- financing for their first films. Something that we don't have on the U.S. side. And so while we want to celebrate Guillermo Toro and Alfonso Cuaron and we want to have them keep working and making the next movies and I can't wait to see Roma, I'm already have my tissue box ready. Um, <laughs> you know, I really want to make sure that we're also celebrating U.S. Hispanic voices, right? Voices that were born here um, that, yes, have an affinity to people like Alfonso Cuaron, but are also very different. And we don't have the same sort of financing system that really helps young Latino voices sort of grow. But I think in the next, you know, five to 10 years, that's changing because of a lot of, a lot of these U.S. Latino people that are really sort of kicking butt right now. Um, so, yes, I would say that it's it's a really great time to be to have my job because I really every day I get to meet incredible, incredible Latino, Latinas, Latinx people um, who have amazing short films, amazing documentaries, who I'm just sort of saying like, oh my God, I can't, you're going to be the next Spielberg. You're going to be the next Jennifer Lawrence. It'll just take time um, as we sort of keep more and more um, uh, projects in the air. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you pr- provided a perfect segue because we're on the same page. I, my last question to you, I was going to talk about your two kids, your two sons, Ignacio and Joaquin. I personally have three daughters. Uh, what do we as parents need to cultivate in our children to change this narrative that we're experiencing and to see real change happen? You know, this is the next generation and we need to to have them be mobilized to impart the kind of change we're looking for in our, whether it's the film industry or the business community, what are some of the things that you are cultivating in your children and, and to assure that, that change will happen? I think for my, for myself, it's really important that my kids, that they live by example, right? And I think one of the things that's really important that my parents did that I hope to do is to show them that, you know, it's really important to be an active force in your community, that it's really important to say absolutely that, you know, it's a lot of people want you to not be active. A lot of people make a lot of money and stay in power when you stay unmotivated, when you stay uninspired. And I think the biggest thing that I've sort of grown up with that I really want my kids to understand is that no, that we really have to be active, that we really want to be the the change makers of the world that we want to see, right? That it's not going to just happen, that you really have to work for it. Um, and I think when I look at my two sons, what I really see is I see the future, right? I see they're part of a cohort of a lot of American kids that are named Ignacio Joaquin. Um, they're part of a cohort that's going to grow up in the United States that's much more Latino and Latinx than I grew up in. And I'm excited for the work that I'm doing because I feel like in the next five to 10 years, as they grow up, they're going to see a lot more Latino representation on TV. And I can't even imagine what that's going to do for their own motivation and psyches. And hopefully it inspires them. And hopefully it means that, you know, there are more kids that then start working in politics, across business, um, across entertainment, um, to really just be more active forces in the change that we want to make. Um, and I'm just very fortunate that I'm allowed to sort of do this job. I'm very fortunate that, uh, I have my two sons that I have my, my wife. Um, but I really, really want to make sure that 
they live in a world that they see that their father is working to make it better and that they have to do the same thing. Um, hmm. Exactly that. Bravo. Bravo. Well said to you and your wife. Congratulations for that. Um, I want to thank you, Jaime. Uh, this has been so generous of you for sharing your story, your voice Latina with us. Um, we support you. We're grateful for the work you are doing to amplify the voices of our community, our stories, and help us discover that, you know, we all may be bringing different perspectives, experiences, backgrounds, but at the end, our love for unity, for understanding and peace is really what binds us all together. I want to close with my favorite Native American proverb. It takes a thousand voices to tell one story. We here at Voice Latina believe every voice matters. Every voice deserves to be heard. Until next time, I'm Patricia Sierra Sampson. Thank you again for listening.